Over the last seven years, I have tried every kind of marketing you can possibly imagine for my business. And I have determined over that time that direct mail has been by far the most profitable marketing channel I have ever tried. And I've spent over a million dollars just testing it out figuring out what works and figuring out what doesn't. And through that time, I've been able to generate over 100 deals per year in my business using direct mail. And now I've created a very small but very powerful mini course on how I utilize direct mail in my business. It explains everything I do from A to Z, and I've made this available to you absolutely free. That's right, no charge, no obligations, just go to my website, mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail to find out how you can implement my system in your business and start generating more leads through direct mail. Go check it out. It's absolutely free. I can't wait for you to try it. You should just keep one concept in mind that the, the safe part of your life and the risky part of your life, you should try to separate as much as possible. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey guys, thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate you being here. I'm excited to have you and I'm excited for my show today. We are talking about asset protection. We're talking about all the things you need to do as a real estate investor to make sure that this wealth that you're creating, this huge business that you're creating to pull you out of your nine to five and, and give you all that financial freedom and all the happiness and the things that you can buy your kids and your grandkids and generational wealth, that you don't lose it all because you're not paying attention to the legalities of it and the risks that you are inherently putting yourself in by having a bit, any business, not just real estate, but real estate happens to be a high dollar, high ticket kind of a endeavor. And so some of the risks are just a little bit bigger because the money involved is a little bit bigger. And so I, I have on the show today, Doug Lodemel. He is uh, the managing partner of Lodemel. Lodemel, one of the nation's leading asset protection law firms. His law firm is responsible for protecting over $4 billion in client assets. Uh, he is an incredibly smart, incredibly uh, well-versed, obviously, in asset protection. And that's what we talk about today. And he blows my mind with a couple of things that he says. Really, everything he said blew my mind. But there were a few specific things that pertain to me and my business that I just didn't know. And it was really, really... Um, enlightening to talk to him and find out some of the things that I'm even doing wrong now that I need to fix in my business. So guys, strap in and get ready. And believe me, we're all good as real estate investors at learning how to do deals, find properties, you know, negotiate great prices and make a lot of money. But all of that money doesn't mean anything if you lose it because you're careless with asset protection. And so this is a very important podcast and one that I was excited to bring to you. So I give you guys Doug Lodemel. All right, Doug, thank you for being here. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate your time and I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. So, you know, Really what we're going to get into a lot in this show, obviously, uh, because of your background, is some of the legal aspects of being in a real estate investor, being in real estate, some things that people don't know. And luckily for you, or maybe maybe this isn't lucky for you, but I'm 
I'm not exactly uh, sophisticated when it comes to uh, the legalities of what I do, and I've been doing it for a long time. And so you're going to have an eager learner and someone who's genuinely curious and hopefully asking all the questions that people in the audience are asking. Um, and so that's a good thing. Sometimes when people come on and have an expertise that I just don't have, it's it makes for a better conversation because I can you know I can ask questions that are probably on the minds of the listeners. So that's a good thing. But let's give folks some sense a little bit more than the bio that they just heard of who you are, what your background is, and, and why this is something they need to listen to. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, I'm an attorney. Um, I initially started practicing with my father. He was an attorney for many, many years, but didn't really practice law. What he did was real estate syndications. Now, this okay. was very avant-garde in the 80s. I mean, he was really at the very front end of this in Arizona. His model was raw land and that was obviously going to be developed. They just they just buy it, they'd hold it, and then they'd sell it to the developers. You know, okay. um, maybe rezone it. You know, buy buy by the acre, sell by the foot. Yep. Um, and so it was it was really interesting how he ended up in asset protection. Because in 1986, we had what was called the SNL crisis here in Arizona. Um, it was a little bit like the 2008 crisis, but just very regionalized to the, okay. the Southwest. Yeah. And a lot of his investors, of which he was the general partner of these syndications, had their own financial problems. When their creditors, mostly banks, came calling upon their interest in the limited partnership that, that they had invested in, what the banks found out was that they didn't really have any rights to their client, their creditor, their, their, their borrowers interest in these LPs. The general mm. partner had discretion and control as to when those distributions are going to be made. And certainly they weren't friendly. My father wasn't friendly to the banks of his clients. He was friendly to his clients. So yes. you can imagine that those distributions were not going to be made anytime soon. Yeah. What he watched happen is those, those clients of his just settle with creditor, with bank after bank after bank. Um, and even though they had the value in those syndication deals, the, the banks couldn't reach them. Yeah. Um, this caused a light bulb to go off in his head and said, hey, um, what if we did that on purpose? What if we actually set something up specifically to protect against asset, um, against creditors? So this was 1986. This was the very beginning of the entire asset protection industry. Um, and he was really in the very, very front of it. He went offshore. He researched the offshore trust, ultimately mm -hmm. began drafting and working specifically in the area of asset protection. So in 1997, when I graduated law school, I joined him. And then we grew this practice together along with my brother. Um, so the three of us, um, which I tell the story in this case, simply because it really kind of comes to our roots as, as, as real estate investors, as a family and yeah. asset protection attorneys was an, a very organic outgrowth of that. So we have a deep understanding of real estate and of asset protection and, and how it all works together. So, um, yeah. hopefully that will be useful for your listeners. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Here's the, the, the trap or not, not a trap. That's not a fair thing to say. Here's the, the, the uh, mistake I think that gets made in real estate. Somebody like me, um, working a nine to five, unhappy, learns about real estate, decides to start flipping houses. Next thing you know, they catch a little fire and they're flipping 10, 15, 20, 50 houses and zero thought is given to asset protection. Like they get good at making money, making deals. They get good at all that. But what they don't pay attention to until, because it's like, it's something that's out of sight, out of mind. They don't think about the asset protection or what can happen to all of this wealth that's being generated until something happens, right? And then it's like, oh crap, what do we do now, right? So what do you suggest 
Um, and let's just take this maybe in, in sections a little bit. Let's let's talk about the person who's just getting started. Maybe mm-hmm. some some general best practices, just some do's and don'ts, and then maybe like speed this up a little bit until we, now maybe we're talking to the person who's been doing this for three or four years and they're starting to get some traction and make some real money. What can they do uh, after the fact or once they've already started making the money? How can they go back and make sure they're doing the right things? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a huge question, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say if we kind of limit the, the scope to the to the legal aspects of it, sure. Um, when you start, you, you should just keep one concept in mind that the, the safe part of your life and the risky part of your life, you should try to separate as much as possible. So the safe part of your life, um, really, when I say that, I mean the safe assets that you hold. Your cash in the bank is safe. Your stocks are safe. Your bonds are safe. Your cryptocurrency. And what I mean by safe is they can't hurt anybody. No, nobody's going to sue you because you left your stock statement from Merrill Lynch on the ground and somebody tripped right, on um, right. it. They don't create liability. You want to keep those in a separate and distinct legal entity from those assets that can create liability. Obviously, a home that you're flipping can create liability. You have workers on there, you have equipment and machinery, and you've got a house that can fall down and burn down and all sorts of ways that, you know, trucks driving on the road. So that fundamental concept, if you can just start with that, and that will cause the legal entities to make more sense to you. And the very first legal entity you should understand is a limited liability company. And a limited liability company is just what it says. It limits the liability. When we talk about real estate from an asset protection standpoint, we're really talking about um, two different types of risk. Risk that is inside and risk that is outside. When you have inside risk, that is risk that is coming from the asset itself. So if you're flipping a house and you got workers in there and somebody gets injured, that's an inside risk. It occurred inside the property or after, you know, let's say you own a rental property and and the pool gate was unlocked and somebody goes in there and gets injured or, you know, the, the, it burns down or um, I had one client who somebody got murdered on his property. I mean, there's just all sorts of crazy stuff that can happen. Those all are occurring inside. So they are, they are a fundamental risk that we want to try to shield. We want to put a wrapper around. So that LLC is the first layer of that wrapper. So okay. you put the rental property, you put the house you're flipping inside the LLC. Would you want your cash and your stock portfolio in that same LLC? No, that would violate the fundamental, keep the safe assets away from the risky assets. Right. Would you want the stocks and the bonds and the crypto in some kind of asset protection vehicle, some kind of entity? Absolutely. Right. So we wanted something, just not the same one. And so um, as you're as you're starting this, just start thinking of that. And and the simplest way to start is to buy your first property in an LLC. Um, and then from there, you know, get into the more sophisticated questions of well, how do I run it? What do I do a second property? What if I flip four properties in that LLC? Should I keep going in that LLC? Yeah. Um, so so, but that just fundamental distinction between the safe and risky assets is a, is a helpful concept. Gotcha. And I do want to talk. I want to take it to the next level, like you just alluded to. But before I do that, this is a question that, ironically, I get. I have no idea, and I usually tell people I, I really don't know. But. Okay. Somebody starting out, let's just say, for example, they're going to start flipping houses. That's what they want to do. The question that I hear that comes up is, should I have an LLC? Should I have an S-Corp? Should I have a C-Corp? Like, is it always an LLC for people when they're starting off flipping houses, for example? Or is there ever a a reason why they should have a C-Corp, for example? 
Okay. That's a really good question. So uh, a, a, when you're talking about a corporation, like a C corporation, um, you're talking about a legal entity. You're also talking about a taxation. And, and so it's two mm-hmm. different things. So you can have an LLC taxed as a C corp. You can as a, have an LLC taxed as an S corp, or you ha- can have an LLC that is disregarded completely or that is taxed as a partnership. So you have four different ways you could tax an LLC. When you have a corporation, which means Inc. at the end, instead of LLC, you see INC, that is a different legal structure. Here's the big distinction, and here's why the answer to your question to jump ahead is it's always going to be an LLC, and here's why. An LLC has members, just like a country club has members, and members can be discriminatory. So you can say, hey, you're not invited to my country club. You have to live in this neighborhood to get an invitation to this country club. That's a normal thing. Um, and, And that's part of the rules, and they're allowed to do that. The same thing is true with a limited liability company. You don't have shareholders. You have members. And members can have restrictions on who can be a member. And you can eliminate entire classes of people from ever becoming a member. And those classes would be, of course, creditors. And so so LLCs, for that reason, are much better from an asset protection standpoint. Corporations, on this other hand, are not membership entities. They They are shareholder entities. And they have no way to exclude anybody from being a shareholder. So if you hold your assets in a C corporation, an Inc., and you have a lawsuit, that creditor can just grab the shares of your ink and now they own all your real estate portfolio. Okay. So, so do not use a corporation at all. Now, if your CPA says, hey, I really want S-Corp taxation, that's fine. You can use an LLC taxed as an S-Corp. Okay. However, that's that should be done carefully because once you tax an LLC as an S-Corp, you also import the restrictions on ownership that LLCs have. So it makes it hard for your LLC to then be owned by a holding company, which is the next level that we'll talk about, which is important. So I would not recommend your LLC that is actually owning the properties be taxed as an S-Corp. You can have an S-Corp in your structure, but it shouldn't be at that level. Those should really be either single member disregarded entities or taxed as a partnership. Got it. And that makes sense. I've never heard that before about excluding members versus like shareholders and how they can come and take your shares. That's I've never heard of that. Now I've always don't don't think about this. I talk to a lot of attorneys who don't understand this. It's a very, very asset protection based understanding and that most attorneys even don't really have a reason to know it. Yeah, because I've never heard an attorney tell me that before. I usually tell people, listen, I'm not a, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a tax person. However, just form an LLC. Like, just do it. Just go. Like, Because usually that's like a stopping point for them. It's like, I want to get started. And I don't know if I need an LLC. It's like, just go, right? So I've always just um, uh, negligently just said do an LLC without oh, having that was a the right what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, turns out I wasn't telling the wrong thing. That's great. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah, like a, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Twice so I was, day, I'm least, right yeah. sometimes. So let's talk about that a little bit. The, the whole uh, concept of, okay, now I'm flipping a lot of houses. I, I started off, I did one. Now I'm up to 50 houses a year. Can I do it all in the same LLC? Should I do it all in the same LLC? Does it even matter how many you flip? I know when it comes to like buy and hold, I I have always heard, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I've always heard you don't want, you know, a hundred rental properties in one LLC, right? It's like you're, it's just way too much exposure. So I think that's a little bit more intuitive than the question about flipping houses and what kind of volume you should or can do inside of an LLC. 
That's it's a really great question because um, you're flipping the house. It's 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 in the LLC. You flip it. It's out of the LLC. Now the LLC is empty and you're thinking, oh, great. Let me just use it again. Um, The answer is you can use that LLC as many times as you want. But as long as that LLC is alive, it's got the hangover liability trailing from any deal it ever did. So my advice would be pick a number that you're comfortable with. Maybe it's 10 flips. Do 10 flips in that LLC, and then let that LLC die a natural death, start a new LLC, do the next 10. Why? Because if deal number three in the first 10 goes bad, which you know they do, we've seen them, you know, foundation issues and, you know, uh, you know, uh, construction defects, things they come back to years later. And I've seen so many clients get into these wicked lawsuits. You want the LLC that is getting sued to be one that is already empty and unused and dying its natural death as opposed to your current LLC, which has three properties in it and a bunch of assets. And, and now you don't want to, um, <laughs> LLCs are inexpensive to form. They're easy. They don't, it, 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 if they were expensive, I obviously we'd say, well, you know, we, we might not want to do that. They're not expensive. Yeah. Um, the other thing is the tax consequences. You're, you're letting those tax consequences from those first 10 deals also die. And, and so it's just, I like to kill an LLC if you're going to be using it for a fairly high risk activity, like flipping houses um, every so often. So it could be every 10 deals. It could be every two years. It could be whatever, you know, whatever you're comfortable with, but yeah. um, I wouldn't just go on and on and on for the next 50 years in the same LLC. Again, something I've never heard. I just have always thought, and it makes total sense what you're saying, but I've always thought, okay, I flipped the first 10 houses. They're gone. I don't have any liability with those houses anymore. Like what's the difference, right? It's a clean, fresh start. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's crazy. So (laughs) it's funny. This is like not really on topic, but it's just an interesting thought that came to me. So one of the things that stops people from getting started, as dumb as it sounds, is they they stress out over the name of their LLC. They want to come up with something cool and catchy and fun and exciting. And it's like, just don't even worry about it. If you're just going to trash it after 10 deals or whatever it is, like, just make it, you know, whatever. Home buyer LLC one, and just go for it and move on, right? Like, don't don't stress. I, out I agree with the that. Name. Don't the name is irrelevant. Don't get attached to it. Don't make it a thing. Just go. Now, can we talk about like let's zoom out a little bit? So you have this one entity that you use for your flipping for the first ten or whatever. What should there be? Should there be more of a parent entity? Like we talk about that L, that uh, LLC with taxes and S corp or something. Is there what is like? What would be a basic, uh, relatively simplistic structure of someone, let's just say, who's flipping 50 houses a year, right? Maybe they got this one LLC and they're kind of rotating and, and getting a new LLC every 10. What else should be around them from a legal standpoint, in your opinion? So so um, the answer is ultimately, we're going to want to have a holding company in the structure. A holding company can be an LLC. I prefer using a limited partnership. There's a few legal distinction reasons why that is better. You'll see a lot of syndication deals use limited partnerships instead of LLCs. Um, and you're going to want to choose a state that is good. I love Arizona. It's got incredible law, uh, exclusive charging order protection, great case laws that the state really has supported that. Uh, plus, I'm in Arizona. And once you register an Arizona limited partnership, you don't have to file it again. You don't have to fill out a form each year. You don't have to pay a fee. It's perpetual. Little things like that matter. I cannot even tell you how many times I've had somebody come to my office, say, oh, yeah, I formed this Nevada uh, LLC a few years ago, but it's 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 out of date now and it's going to be 8,000 to renew it. He's got stuff in it. It's it's a big mess. So yeah. little things like just fewer moving parts, the better. 
Yeah. That's my preference. So I like Arizona yep. Limited Partnership as the holding company. So what? here's what I see happens. You're flipping and then you get a property that you actually don't want to flip. It actually works better to hold onto it and make it a long-term rental or a short-term rental or whatever it is. And you're going to make it a portfolio property. At that point, you want to take that property out of the flipping LLC and into the long-term holding LLC. That long-term holding LLC in turn would be owned by that let's say that Arizona asset management limited partnership, which is your holding company. So as you take assets for long-term holding, they should be in the holding company structure. The flipping entity, I would not put in the holding company. Why? It's the riskiest thing you're doing. It's also transient. It doesn't have value constantly. It's going to be killed every so often. So there's no real reason to have it in the holding company. And all you do by putting it in the holding company is increase the exposure to the holding company. So gotcha. you're flipping properties, LLC, I would have on the side. Flip them, flip them, flip them, do your deals. A lot of people have partners in these. They want to do it with somebody. So they're 50-50. Great. Right. That thing's filing its own tax return. It's creating a K-1 that goes to your individual return. But your long-term holding, which also now includes your cash, your savings, your cryptocurrency, all your other stuff, which you know we can talk about um, in real estate, You know, people tend to, to just just want to do nothing but real estate because the returns are so good. But mm-hmm. there's a reason to have some liquidity as well. So as you have the liquidity, that can go directly in the holding company because it's safe. The risky assets, the properties that you're going to keep go in LLCs before they go into the holding company. Got you. Okay. So the LLC that holds the long-term properties becomes a, and it becomes a property of the holding company. Is that what you're saying? It, it becomes, yeah, it becomes a sub entity of yeah. the holding company. That's also why you don't want that any to be an S-corp. If it's an S-corp, even an LLC taxed as an S-corp, then it can't be owned by the holding company. You, oh. you, you all of a sudden put like a, a, a little circle around it and say, oh, you know, you can only have it owned by an individual or by a special type of trust. So careful with S-corps. Don't, I, I had one guy come to me and Everything was an S-corp because his accountant said, oh, you should do it as an S-corp. And then he made that law for everything he ever did. He couldn't move anything. We couldn't transfer anything into the holding company. We couldn't connect anything because the S-corp restricts ownership. So careful with S-corps. It's okay to have one. And and usually if uh, it's going to be a management company, that's perfect because it, it, it can now receive management fees construction mm-hmm. management fees, whatever. Now you can suck off as much of the profit as you need to create the tax benefit of the S-Corp. Yeah. Perfect. That makes sense. So a holding company that has LLCs under it that it owns, and then off to the side, this LLC that that flips houses because it's so risky is basically. Exactly. And then and okay. then off to the other side, potentially, depending on how many properties you have, uh, an LLC taxed as an S-Corp that's managing everything and receiving fees from all those other LLCs and creating a positive tax effect for you, which your accountant will be happy about. Got it. Okay. So let's talk briefly, and I don't know if you deal with people who do this very often, but wholesalers. different than flipping a little less liability, but still right. There's money coming in and out. What is it still an LLC? Does it need to be on its own? Can it be owned by the holding company? Should it be on on the side on its own? So when you say wholesale, you mean somebody who puts it into escrow and then tries to sell sell it out before he ever closes escrow. Okay. So yeah, I would, I would use an LLC so that your name on the escrow is the LLC. Mm -hmm. Um, If you put something into contract in an LLC and let's say you can't close, let's say the buyer or the seller wants to make a big deal out of it. The market drops in between, whatever. Yeah. Contracts create liability. You're all of a sudden in, in, you know, you're, 
you're you're with somebody in this contract. Um, I would use an LLC, even if you're never taking title of the property. I'd like the LLC name to be on there in the buyer's line when you're trying to do your wholesaling. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about? I know you do talk about um, the market right now and and some of the things that you're seeing. Um, what are some of the risks that you see associated with the market cycle that we're in right now? And and what what do you what are your thoughts basically generally on the real estate market now? So, um, I mean, it wasn't even a month ago that I did a podcast and I was really, this was the topic of kind of the, the market. And, um, and now we've already seen it in the last month. Everything is just the brakes have started to be pushed. The interest rates, you know, largest increase since the 70s. It's, 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 it's really a, a unique moment. Um, the biggest risk I see is over leverage. People just get over leveraged. They get so excited and they're like, this is all working. And it's a, really a game of musical chairs. That music will stop. It always yeah. does. It's it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And when it stops, if you're the one standing with that property that you've over leveraged yourself into, and we have a correction. And again, for people who weren't around in 2008, or at least weren't adults and weren't really uh, aware of what was going on, um, the, the concept of real estate never goes down. They're not making any more of it. Um, it'll never go down in value is simply not true. It does go down in value. It, it corrects just like anything else. So if you're leveraged 90% on everything, you're just you know borrowing from Peter to pay Paul on every deal and it's all working because as long as everything's going up, it works. Well, that's great. But when the music stops and everything either just stops or starts to go down 10 or 20%, now you're underwater. So yeah. my advice, especially right now, if it wasn't apparent a month ago, it's certainly apparent now, um, I would be slowing down on anything that puts me over leveraged, um, gotcha. which means either do fewer deals, um, carry more cash, put more cash down in the deals that you are doing, um, look for deals that you're going to, uh, I think the risk to the flippers is, is bigger than the risk to the portfolios. Because if you've got a tenant and it slows down, really, unless you lose your tenant, you're fine. You're still paying yeah. your mortgage. Yeah. But if you're relying on properties to go up in order to make your money and the music stops and they're no longer going up, now you're stuck with however many deals you have in the pipeline. Um, and, and you might have to sell them for less than you have into them. So so yeah. not being over leveraged is, is just a massive thing. It's a mistake I see beginners make all the time. They just, yeah. they get so excited. It's working. They think it it can't go wrong, and they they just they borrow from everywhere. They're they're right at the edge of their cash flow, um, and that's of course dangerous. Yeah, it's funny when I started getting interested in real estate before I actually started, it was like two thousand three. And one of the strategies that you know the gurus or whatever people who are teaching real estate investing would say is, you literally like one of the strategies was buy a house at value, whatever it is, off the MLS. Just hold on to it for a few years and then sell That's it and make $30,000, right? It's like that was a strategy. And then, like you said, 2008, for those of us who are around and, and witnessed that, it's like you should never do that. I don't care how good the market is. In my opinion, you that's just like that's the icing on the cake. If that happens, it's great, but you can't you can't count on that. Certainly not in a long term hold because things can happen. In the short term, you're right. You can definitely lose money and houses go down in value. If you bought a house in 1950, it is most assuredly worth more than you bought it for. So in the macro sense, I think real estate tends to go up, but in the in the micro sense, absolutely it can go down. It's totally Well, true. and if you are going to buy and hold real estate, just make sure that your cash flow component is 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 really yeah. solid. So yeah. let's say it's an industrial property 
And, um, you know, one thing about my clients who do industrial is it's, it's very recession proof because here's what happens. People have their industrial property, things get bad. They start living in those things and, yeah. um, all of a sudden, but they're paying their rent. Um, and as long as you're not over leveraged in that and it's cash flowing, you can hold it through a downturn. Yeah. It's the, it's the, you know, there's a saying gross is vanity, net is sanity, cash is king. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you say, oh, I own a real estate portfolio, I had a guy literally tell me $20 million of real estate. I said, wow, that's impressive. Um, how much net? Net? I'm like, yeah, how much mortgage do you have? Goes, oh, I have about, about $18 million in mortgages. I'm like, okay, so you have $2 million worth of property. So, yeah. so you're telling me 20 because it sounds good. You look like a yeah. roller. Yeah. But reality is, is you have $2 million of equity. I said, what about your cash flow? He's like, well, a lot of this stuff was, you know, adaptive redevelopment. I'm actually negative a million dollars a year cash flow. I'm like, you couldn't give me that portfolio. I wouldn't even yeah. take it because yeah. it, like gross is vanity, net is sanity, cash is king. And when things turn down, cash is really king. If if you're flipping right at this moment, I would be very conservative about getting into my next deal. I would be looking to get out of my current deals in cleanly. And I would probably be, um, you know, biding a little bit of time before I do my next deal, because I don't think we're anywhere near, you know, we're just, we're just cresting the top of this wave around, you know, the values of real estate. I I think we're going to start to see a little bit of a, a little bit of a slide down. So you talked about being over leveraged. I couldn't agree more, but talk to me a little bit about this, you know, using leverage right now, as opposed, some people are hoarding cash, right? They're just, they're selling out their portfolios. They're just hoarding cash and they're waiting for everything to go the other way. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you're, it's going to be very hard for those people to go wrong, right? So they might miss a little bit more of an opportunity. So they might've been able to do one more round of deals or two more round of deals and end up with more right. cash, but they definitely are not going to go wrong. And when, it, when, when they're ready to get back in, they don't have anything to worry about. Um, those people who are trying to skate right to the edge of the ice, just right, right to the edge just to make sure that I, I get all squeeze everything out of this. They're the ones at risk of that ice breaking and, and, yeah. and falling. Um, so I, I don't, I, I don't mind that strategy at all. I mean, it's, yeah. like you just said cash is King. So if you're hoarding mm-hmm. cash right now, I would say, you know, it, it, not a bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. You we you mentioned when we were talking prior to going live on this uh, about a guide that you created. What what was that again? What was that about? I know it's something you want to talk about. Well, so there's a lot of people. I get a lot of questions about how do I manage the cash flow of my properties. I have six LLCs with with twelve properties in them, and I I don't even know where I have I have all these bank accounts. I'm confused. It's complicated. My accountant is is confused, costing more and more money because they have to figure it out every year. So. Um, a lot of people don't understand that just because you have an LLC set up for a set of properties does not mean that you also need a bank account for that LLC and that you have to have all the income and expenses go out of that LLC. That's another example of a good use of a management company off to the side. You could have 20 LLCs, one management company, and have every rent check paid into that one management company and every expense paid out of that one management company for all 20 LLCs and all 50 properties. Now we're talking about a much easier way to manage your assets. You could do it with a management company. You could say, well, I'm just going to take one of my underlying LLCs and ask it to do double duty. It's going to hold these two properties and it's going to manage the rest of the LLCs. Okay. Again, back to one bank account. Um, You could have a holding company that is above all those LLCs 
which a lot of people do. They come in the door, usually with a Wyoming LLC as a holding company, because they heard that somewhere in the internet um, or, or somewhere. And, and so they have it set up and then they realize, oh, I want to add protection. So we'll keep that in place. And then I'll suggest that they use that one Wyoming LLC that holds all their sub LLCs as the management company. Again, now you're down to one checkbook, one set of deposits and returns. So, um, so I wrote a guide. It's just six or seven pages explaining all these options and helping people understand. And I'm happy to send that out to anybody who, who that wants is. It. How can they get that, by the way? Um, they could just email support at laudanel.com and, and I'll have it sent out to them. Okay. That's support at L-O-D-M-E-L-L.com. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Perfect. I wish I would have had that. As you're speaking, I was going, you've got to be kidding me because I, 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 prior to last year, I sold my rentals last year, kind of hoarding the cash like we just talked about. But yeah. I had like, tw- I think 25 at the peak and like seven LLCs and all of them have their own bank account. All of them were doing their own bookkeeping. Good God, that was a pain in the butt. And I'm, I wish right? I would have had the guide, yeah. honestly, because I never would have. And it, even just unwinding all of that was a pain in the butt. The Because I'm in Michigan where it's very cheap to form an LLC, but we have to renew every year. And yikes, I wish I would have had that guide. So yeah. guys, go grab that. Support at Ludmill.com. Um, listen, man, Doug, this has been really fun for me and educational. I, I consider myself to be ignorant on tax, uh, not taxes, but on, well, on taxes too, but on the legal side of it. And, and it's always good to shed some light. I mean, everything you said, basically, since we started this podcast was like an aha moment for me. And I've been doing this since 08. Like I started in 08, right? I started when everything went that way. So at least I got, I got the experience of knowing not to count on appreciation and to make sure cash flow is good and all that stuff. Like I learned that lesson, but I'm the guy that I said in the beginning who just learned how to do deals and learn how to build a business and learn how to scale up. But I didn't spend a lot of time and still, you know, shame on me. I don't spend enough time thinking about the legal side of it. I, I think based on what you've said, I have a pretty good structure situation right now, but for the first handful of years, I didn't. And I was doing enough deals to cause significant damage to myself and my own family, my finances, and the things that that are that I need to protect. So this is something that not all investors love to stop and think about because they just want to make the next deal. But that next deal that you're making that you're so excited about where you're going to crush it, it's a home run, like that is at risk until you kind of shore up your your own situation. So thanks yep. for being on. Thanks for doing this. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been great meeting you and I, I wish you nothing but luck. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Great to be here. All right. Thanks again. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Very enlightening for me. I am uh, I ashamed to admit that I just don't have a lot of the asset protection knowledge that I probably should have. And that's exactly why I invite folks like Doug on the show, because I know I need it. And I can almost guarantee that the vast majority of my listeners are not watching closely enough their asset protection side of their business. They're not protecting themselves against potential problems that that can come up in any business that you run. By the way, any business is uh, definitely at risk for lawsuits and things like that. And real estate's no exception. And we really need to protect ourselves. Let's not just focus on making money. Let's focus on not only making the money, but protecting the money that we make for the sake of everyone included, right? All of us, our, our employees, ourselves, our families, future generations, all of that. We need to pay attention to how we protect what we are creating. I hope you guys got a lot out of this. And I'm, like I said, I'm excited to be able to bring you shows like this for the good of everyone, including yourself. So take this to heart. 
go get his free guide. I know I'm going to go grab it right now. I want to see that because I have definitely made some of those mistakes and it could have saved me a lot of time and money and energy if I'd have done it the way I should have from the beginning. So go grab that. Until the next time, get out there and make it happen. We'll talk to you soon.